Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dino Sofos. Dino is a recently departed editor of BBC News Podcasts, and he's just left the corporation to set up his own podcast production company. Um, he's actually been up in Sheffield, his home city, this week. Um, as he gets the company up and running, and that's hopefully one of the things we're going to speak about. So Dino originally began his career at Radio Sheffield as a reporter, moving on to Radio 5 Live and Radio 4, um, where he worked as a producer on a number of political programmes. He went on to create the BBC's incredibly popular political podcast formats, BrexitCast, AmeriCast and Newscast, which have amassed 85 million downloads, um, and working with the likes of Laura Coonsberg, Adam Fleming, Chris Mason and Emily Maitlis along the way. He's now left the BBC after 14 years to set up his own company, Persephonica, with business partner Tom O'Hara. Um, we've got lots to talk about, so um, let's get going. Um, so, what an intro. Yeah, Cheers, well, thanks very much, and thanks very much for joining us um, today. Um, I guess I'd really like to start at the beginning, um, which is mm. to find out a bit more about kind of how your interest well i imagine your love of radio and audio began and also if you could tell me a little bit about kind of how you got going initially at radio sheffield yeah um well i've, I've just always been so I grew up in sheffield just just to start there and this is probably why you're talking to me on on the yorkshire uh, yorkshire post podcast um grew up in sheffield always really really passionate about radio and as a kid would listen to Hallam FM in my bedroom and Radio 1 and take bits off the radio so I guess right back to being a kid I was kind of producing in my own little way um and sort of did entry into journalism sort of did school newspaper then went to university in Sheffield to do um a politics degree politics and French and uh I got involved quickly in the student radio station Shore Radio it was called then um and I did some some radio when I was on my year abroad in France as well um so I just got the 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 radio bug quite quickly um and then you know always sort of knew deep down that I wanted to do something in journalism or radio and it became clear then that broadcast was was what I wanted to, wanted to do so I went and did a journalism course down in London, the one which so many people have done, which is a city university course. There's a good one in Sheffield, by the way. But at that point, I felt like I'd, I'd you know, stayed in Sheffield for uni and I needed to just get a bit of a change of scenery. Uh, so I went back down there. But actually, one of the things you have to do when you're on one of those courses is you have to pick somewhere to do your work experience. And kind of lots of my peers were doing you know, placements at kind of the BBC News HQ in London or Sky News. Um, but I kind of felt that I actually wanted to go to Radio Sheffield because I, I felt I knew the patch. It's where I could actually be the most effective uh, in terms of, my, you know, when you're in work <laughs> experience, you've kind of got to shine, haven't you, and show that you can do the job. So I, I went to Radio Sheffield, really got on well with uh, Emma Gilliam, who was the old news ed there, who's since left. Um, and yeah, I, she was really, really lucky. She offered me a job. Um, so I left city university, went straight to, uh, radio Sheffield. Um, and yeah, it was just, a, it was a fantastic period. Uh, I, I kind of, um, joined in 2007, 
um and that's when we had the you know the great yorkshire floods especially in sheffield um so that was, the baptism of fire it, yeah it was, <laughs> it, it, it was a proper baptism of fire so i find myself you kind of join doing all sorts there so you're you know reporter writing bulletins you know all sorts and i very quickly found myself on national radio so kind of doing five live um uh you know reporting on the floods um so that was yeah a proper baptism of fire but i was always really really into politics and um because of you know my degree at sheffield uni doing politics and like even at student radio i'd kind of we had uh might remember him a guy called nick clegg who was the mp for for sheffield hallam um and i got him on my student radio show show to do a kind of pound shop desert island discs uh which was quite funny actually because um I've actually got the tape. I listen back to it. I would, it will never see the light of day because I, I'm, speak, I'm speaking at about a million miles an hour. I'm clearly really nervous. Um, but yeah, we, 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 he was like, I think he picked like Texas. And then we also showed him up as well because he didn't, he didn't quite, he said he hadn't heard Arctic. Oh, movies. really? And that was at the, that was the time story, they were that. obviously like on their ascension. Yeah. And he was like, I, you know, Dean, I'm afraid to say you've got me there. I haven't quite, I haven't, haven't got around to listen to them yet. I'm not familiar with them. So it was it was quite it was quite nice in the way that I kind of followed some of those Sheffield politicians as as I kind of progressed from mm. local radio to national radio and you know, Nick Clegg became the Lib Dem leader. So I uh moved from Radio Sheffield to Five Live quite quickly. Um and I always wanted to work in political journalism, so I pushed to work at the BBC's political hub in Westminster. Uh, a building called Millbank, which everybody who works in in uh, the media in London will be familiar with. Um, and I produced John Pienaar, um on Five Live. And, you know, we just had an amazing run. We had kind of had Scottish independence referendum, uh, the coalition, and then we launched John Pienaar's Sunday politics program, Pienaar's Politics, which was, was great. And that was my first kind of... Um, you know, foray into like creating mm. a format from scratch and building something new. Uh, and that was kind of when I realized that's what I really, really and like doing. Just pick, picking up on that, how important is when you're creating a program like that, kind of the, the relationship and the chemistry between the presenter, in that case, John Pienaar, and then yourself as the producer? Um, I mean, I think it's everything. I think you can... I've been really lucky, but in a way, not sort of. I've I've kind of designed it as well that I've I've always worked with really really lovely broadcasters who I get on with, um, and you know there are broadcasters where I've been offered jobs on their shows and I've gone actually I don't want to do that because you know they've got a bad rep or or whatever, but you know you you can hear I think the shows that where there's good chemistry behind the scenes and on on mic or in front of camera it's just obvious because a happy workplace mm. you know you can, you can you can see it a mile off right um so it's really important and john and i you know we're st we were mates then we're still mates um we just had a real laugh making that sunday politics program where it was completely sort of you know unbuttoned we realized that we were up against the kind of Andrew Marr shows and the Sky Sky News Sunday program, and we would never get the big guests every time uh, or, or, or ever, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, no, we did. we did. We got some big interviews, but but we had to offer something different. And I think what we offered was, was great. And we did the kind of backbench mm -hmm. questions where we kind of 
John did snog Mario Void with MPs and we got some really <laughs> we got some great lines from that. But it was kind of creating an environment which I kind of went on to do with with Brexit cast and Americast, where we create a space where you allow politicians to be human. Um and you allow journalists to be human as well, actually. And and we we uh, just let people we give them a glimpse behind the curtain. We allow people to a bit of time as well sometimes, because in, in as you know, in broadcasting, especially looking at some of the big talent I work with, like Laura and, and John and Chris Mason, uh, people like that, that they they have these huge jobs and this am- amazing amount of knowledge and access to people at the top of power, but they always don't, they don't always have the time to kind of disseminate that information. Um, sometimes, you know, Laura's got a couple of minutes on the today program in the morning or, you know, a live on the 10 o'clock news, but, uh, but on Brexit cast and a newscast, what we, what they had was, you know, sometimes 40 minutes of an evening to really, get into the weeds and go, this is what I'm being told is happening at the top of government, all the nuance that surrounds it, which is so important in politics and, you know, able to have a different type of conversation with politicians when we had them on. And we didn't always have them on as well. And I think that was mm-hmm. our benefit is that we chose when it was the right time to do an interview. It wasn't like bloody hell, who are we going to have to, you know, we need a politician on tonight. Who are we going to get? It was like, no, sometimes it's not always the best way to explain a story is by grilling mm-hmm. a politician or, you know, trying to get a line out of them. And, so, yeah, so I learned that quite quickly. So, so how did Brexit cast kind of come about? Can you, could, because it, it was obviously sort of 2017-ish that I think it started. So could you kind of talk me yeah. through the process of how you came up with with the idea? Sure. So I'd, I'd had a bit of a diversion away from radio into social media um, around the the referendum, the, during the referendum campaign. And... I, re- I just sort of realized actually I love I love all that and it's great and we we did some great experiment experimentation around Facebook lives and snapchat and things like that but actually audio was where my heart, heart was um and I looked around and all the newspapers were were doing politics podcasts and the BBC didn't have one and I used to sit in the morning meeting at uh, BBC Westminster where you'd have these kind of you know, big beasts of political journalism sat around a table in the morning, just chewing, you know, chewing the fat and talking about what's going on. And I just thought we should be broadcasting this, you know, this is amazing. And I learned more then in that meeting than I did listening to them on air the rest of the day. Uh, And actually when I thought about it, I was like, this stuff could actually go out, you know, everybody's, you know, they're by nature, they're impartial Mm -hmm. BBC journalists and they are behind the scenes as well. Um, And you know they're not really revealing their sources in the newsroom either so i thought let's just transfer this so we, we launched election cast in 2017 um had a bit of resistance to it at first uh which is always funny now when i think about it um, was that from the presenters or was that from the higher up the chain uh yeah some like they've all left now but kind of people who were running the BBC podcast offer at the time um yeah which is you know obviously now a very slick professional operation then it wasn't so um so yeah there was a bit of pushback from from some some of the suits uh as to why we can you know this surely this isn't the right way to do it and you know whatever moving on um (laughs) but yeah so we launched election cast in 2017 as a daily kind of roundup of what's going on in the campaign and actually at the start it was a, a whole 
uh, range of BBC correspondents and editors. So John Pienaar and Chris Mason was really key in that. Uh, Chris Mason, obviously a fellow Yorkshireman, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about him uh, a bit later, uh, who's been hugely important throughout, you know, had a great relationship with him throughout my career. Um, so we so we did that and it was okay. Nobody really listened to it in huge numbers, but it, but it was received positively. And we learned a lot making it about, you know, how to just do news differently mm. and talk, show our workings on our journalism. And it, not everything has to be a kind of shiny uh package or you know we can just talk like normal human beings about what's going on um and we got to the end of that and i actually sat down with with um heidi dawson who's now the controller of five live and she was commissioning editor there and we just said i think we've got something here because they were sort of backing the podcast uh, at that point and i said you know the next thing that's clearly obvious that we should be talking about and, and giving people the inside track on is the Brexit mm-hmm. negotiations, which had started uh, or were about to start, and it t- it coincided with Adam Fleming becoming a Brussels correspondent, and uh, he just got a job out there. And we thought, well, wouldn't it nice, you know, to have Adam, who was kind of been I'd been working with on the 2017 campaign, and Chris Mason, and let's have them explaining the story from different sides. And, and at the start, Catcher Adler and Laura Koonsberg were kind of, um, uh, they weren't presenters at that point. They were people who we would go to kind of knock on the door of their office and say, oh, you know. Come Guest stars or whatever. <laughs> Guest stars, yeah. Um, but actually, a bit of that, I think, was just us not thinking that, you know, this format maybe was wasn't worthy of their time they're really busy people but actually the more they did it the more they loved doing it um and they then very quickly became the stars actually frankly <laughs> although chris and adam <laughs> were like to, like we like to hear that but but you know um they were and the chemistry between all four of them was absolutely amazing and we created an audience of people who were coming to us yes to hear about the the Brexit negotiations in detail exactly what had moved we were doing it weekly and and kind of special episode, emergency episodes at that point so m- maybe two two or sometimes three times a week so they were coming to us for an update on what was going on we could do those emergency episodes when something big happened in the negotiations and there was movement so people were coming to us for that detail but they were also coming to us for just to feel part of that little club that part of that family of people who were really engaging were funny were warm and people just wanted to feel part of that and and they were part of that you know our brexit casters or newscasters as they became you know would send us emails and 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 tweets and you know were really involved in it and and we really kind of fed off their feedback um so that was great. And I think what that also showed to us as well was that we had a really broad audience of people who were, so we knew like Adam and, and Laura and Catchy would get messages from people saying, you know, at the top of government in the UK or the actual negotiators who were tuning in to hear what the other side was thinking. You know, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, the, Catcher and Laura and Adam and Chris were being briefed by yeah. people at the top of the negotiations. So it's it's a great source of information. So we had people at the top of the negotiations, like really senior people. Um, and of course, we could never say, like name them that they were listening. And then we had 
you know, students, A-level politics students listening um, in all, all parts of the country, including some in Yorkshire, um, who were using it as a kind of study aid. So it was just amazing that we had, we created that, you know, broad range of... of, of and it of must have been a really exciting time for yourself, kind of obviously very intense time politically, but it must have been really exciting to kind of see that snowball effect of, of the show picking up. And uh, am, I, am I right yeah. in thinking they ended up, they broadcast it on TV as well, didn't they, at point? Yeah, so we, we were the first BBC podcast to be commissioned for BBC One. Uh, and it was the time that this week, the Andrew Neil slot kind of that came to an end um and we they were that you know they needed something to fill the slot and, and we took it uh and did really really well and we peaked at 1.1 million viewers at wow. 11 45 on a on a thursday night and when i told i remember having had a, a kind of bbc networking lunch with the head of bbc uh, drama and when i told her the figures you know jaw hit the desk, <laughs> like, blimey you know we we'd sometimes you know Channel Four, you know, whoever would kill for figures like that sometimes. So yeah, it, it just really connected and it transferred to TV. And I think one of the things that I was insistent on was that we didn't change the podcast when it went to TV. So it was fly on the wall cameras. We didn't suddenly create a fake podcast studio in a TV studio because then you have runners yeah. and directors. And what worked about it was the intimacy of just having four people in a room and me behind the glass. And we managed to, you know morph our little radio studio and put cameras on the walls and so we, we managed to keep the magic um i think uh yeah it's always different when you know there's a tv audience but we we did a, the best yeah. we could have done brush your hair a bit a bit more before maybe it's like that yeah not if not if you're chris mason <laughs> i mean one thing that really struck me particularly with brexit cast was it kind of almost humanizes maybe the wrong word but it really gave you an insight into the BBC presenters and who they were, because obviously when you're normally perhaps on like news at 10 and things like that, and the nature of the BBC, it has to be to a certain extent, very straight down the line. Um, but it seemed to kind of shift, shift people's perceptions slightly of, of them as reporters. I mean, was that a deliberate intention or was that something that kind of, naturally came out of, of the process of the podcast yeah that that's really flattering and I think um when you speak to editors now at, at BBC News and in TV I think that there is an acknowledgement that the the general tone of how correspondents deliver you know pieces to camera or two ways as we call them in the business which is basically a correspondent having a chat with a presenter has really shifted and correspondents I mean, it was amazing. Like, as soon once we'd done Brexit cast, kind of loads of correspondents wanted in on the action because they were like desperate to to have a a space where they could also be human yeah. beings and talk normally <laughs> and not do news talk. Actually, so it, in a way, it was kind of, um, you know, it, it was kind of intentional. But but then going back to kind of Adam and Chris, and you know, to pick those two out, that you know, that kind of five live. Um, style I mean five live is isn't you know the tone on five live is basically people speaking yeah, normally true. most of the time uh and having conversations and having members of the public there. so it wasn't any it wasn't rocket science it was just look people want to, to talk normally not in kind of weird news talk with kind of terminology that nobody understands we just want to converse like human beings so we just transfer we you know just 
shifted that into the podcast space basically and of course you know you can be even more informal in the podcast space you also frankly have the the safety net of the of it, the fact that it's pre-recorded so you know we're recording this now if i dropped an f-bomb or said something inappropriate which i won't do but if i did you'd be able wait, to edit wait it out. until you hear the rest of the questions <laughs> <laughs> but like but just knowing that you've got that kind of um safety net is mm. really really helpful because it means you can just push the boundaries a little bit you know and um try things out and experiment and that's what we always did with with all of those formats is let's try something out and and it's great having you know unlike kind of tv and radio you very quickly in podcasts get a sense of what's yeah. working so you know tv you get the overnights and ra- you enrage us but podcasting is blimey that data is stark you know you you know how long people are listening for uh you know their age where they are in the country when they switched off you know it's really really stark so and you also have just you know lots of people feel like they own that podcast if they're into it if if it's their podcast that they listen to every day you know very quickly if you've done something that they that they didn't like so you're able to respond to that and be quite reactive and in the same way we can be very reactive with the news cycle so when some we would sometimes we would get you know hundreds and hundreds of tweets saying wow this is like when there was a story that had just broken at 11 o'clock at night or whatever and we would be sort of on our whatsapp group with the presenters going ah do we need to record one tonight and then you would know when you had to because people were just begging for it actually weirdly and going we want you know we want a brexit cast now record a brexit cast and because of the technology which then became really useful to us in the pandemic. Like yeah. Pre-pandemic, we would we would just by the nature of where everybody was, we would be having to record Laura in the back of a taxi or on an aeroplane, you know, with presenters in different time zones and me at home sometimes. So so yeah, we were able to be really reactive, which I think is also formed part of the success. And, and the other thing that I just wanted to ask you about um, is because obviously you've been close to, to these journalists, work very closely with them. It's that mm. BBC journalists in particular, and probably in particular Laura Koonsberg, seem to get an enormous, inordinate amount of abuse on social media. Um, mm. I mean, how, how do they deal with that? And how, how do you reflect on that, having worked with these people, you know, very closely? Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it, it's no secret that Laura obviously gets just an incredible amount of, of of abuse on social media and you know you just have to look below any tweet that she posts um and it's shocking and um but other bbc journalists do too you know i had my fair share of abuse for making a podcast and you look i think what we all realize very very quickly is that twitter isn't the real world right and when you are producing a podcast like Brexit cast or AmeriCast, we would get hundreds and thousands of emails, especially during the pandemic, actually, when we, when we made the coronavirus newscast of people just, you know, engaging with us, but really a lot of the time thanking us for being their companion mm-hmm. and like being somewhere where they could come and, and engage with news in a kind of warmer sense. And, they really felt that they got to know the journalists and they got to know Laura and Chris and 
Fergus Walsh and Adam, you know, they became, they almost felt like they were sort of their mm-hmm. mates, which in a way they kind of were. And Adam really, really nailed that, I think, with coronavirus newscast. He would speak directly to the listener. And Laura was incredible at, you know, she she constantly, you know, so she gets all the abusive tweets, but actually she gets loads of people going, I've got a story here. Or, yeah. I think you should know this about my business, my care home, what's going on and, and the real poli- real world politics. Laura is really good at getting back yeah. to those people and going, will you come on the podcast? You know, to the point where we had somebody who um, emailed us uh, about the fact that her mother had died in a care home and she couldn't be with her when she died. And Laura and Adam read that email out on the podcast on BBC One. Uh, it was incredibly moving. But, you know, that just, you know, that gives you faith in the fact that, you know, actually 99.999% of people aren't Twitter bots, yeah. you know, or Twitter people registering Twitter accounts under weird, you know, names that nobody can trace them back to. And you've just got to kind of filter it out or acknowledge that, filter it. I mean, you know, I, look, I, I can't speak for Laura and you know, she gets a lot of it. And I, I know just even when Laura mentioned me in a tweet, I see it all and I think, blimey, it's really tough. And journalists do not deserve that for doing their job. And I feel very, very strongly about it. But I did take solace in the fact that it yeah. wasn't indicative of, of, of real listeners. And, and one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, in early 2018, despite all, all your hard work with Brexit cast and everything else, um, you managed to find the time to come up um, to... Back, welcome back to Sheffield and do a report on the tree felling debacle at the time. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because the report that eventually came out, I think it's fair to say kind of moved the dial a bit on on that story and and kind of the, the eventual yeah. decision to end the, the tree felling. Yeah, I mean, first of all, just to pay tribute to the Yorkshire Post coverage, because I know you, you guys did an incredible uh, job and you also moved the dial on that on that kind of scandal, as it, as it, as it turned out to be. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a I'm Sheffield born and bred. Also got some Greek heritage, but I was born in Sheffield and went to school there. Went to university there. My family still live there. I've got most of my mates, even the ones down in London, are from Sheffield. So I'm back there very, very regularly. And I've you know, it's always that's always my home. Um, and I'm, I'd say I stay quite plugged into um, what's going on in the city. Uh, and yeah, I've done other reports as well. We won't talk about it today for obvious reasons, but, you know, reported on the Jared Amara stuff as well. Did a podcast about that. But yeah, the tree, um, the, the tree gate was something that, you know, it was happening in Netheredge where my parents had lived for a while. Um, and I knew, you know, I had contacts, you know, local politicians, local police officers people who lived there and that kind of that story sort of fell in my lap a little bit and I just pitched to my bosses in London um to say I think we should be doing this because I think it it was you know okay I mean they say all news is local right but it was it was indicative of you know big PFI contracts local people pushing against what they saw as corruption um and and people power Mm -hmm. and I think it was there were so many elements to that story which were just incredible seeing pensioners locked up and bundled in the back of police vans um yeah so i i, I was really lucky that you know bbc news centrally 
had the resources to kind of deploy me and and spe- and I spent a good few weeks actually based literally yeah. based in the heart of Sheffield at the tree fellings talking to people seeing with my own eyes what was going on and you know that's and, and I appreciate that actually like local resources and local journalism I don't need to tell you are 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 sparse and they're getting sparser and not everybody has the has the resources even local bbc local radio to send Mm -hmm. people for days and days to go and you know do be on the ground for that long so i guess i had an advantage there in that i could actually spend some i carved out some time to actually get into the weeds of the story and and just to witness with my own eyes what was going on um and yeah by the end of it i think in fact I got a message when I left the BBC from a councillor in Sheffield who said you know wished me all the best but said one day I'll tell you about the full impact of your piece on Sheffield trees outside the police station the train it set in motion and a few people have said that that when we put that film on the front page of the BBC news website which is still available I've watched um, it back this morning actually I watched it back yeah yeah, I'm really proud of that film um and you know, it, we we took our time to make it, and we spoke to a lot of people, and we did our we did our homework on it. Um, but when that went on the front page of BBC News website and social media, it very quickly the felling stopped. Um, and you know that you, you do feel, and then all the stuff that has come out subsequently, you know, which we we kind of we kind of knew, but you can't, you know, you don't always have your sources to back this stuff up. But we we felt really vindicated. I mean, we knew there was some some really dodgy stuff going on at the time um and that felt the trees were being felled unnecessarily uh and people were being treated very very badly um by by the police and and the private security um but yeah it's it's nice to be vindicated and it's nice to feel as a as a as a journalist who's got a connection to a place to be able to report on your mm-hmm. own city and your own people and to tell their stories. And I think that's really, really important. It's something I've always been really passionate about is representing my city. Um, and outside, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, getting outside London, getting outside the Beltway. What does that actually mean? It means not just getting on a train for a day and doing some Vox Pops and going back to London. It means actually you know basing yourself there and the bbc is doing some you know some, done some great work in obviously moving huge amounts of people to salford and cardiff and glasgow and leeds i always felt a little bit miffed that kind of sheffield you know i'm biased obviously but i always feel as such a huge yeah. city that sheffield gets overlooked sometimes and you know we've got a great local station in sheffield and look north has a base there it's not just a place where there are, you know, floods or crime or people cutting down healthy trees. You know, just just think about the culture, um, everything that comes out of Sheffield. You know, music, film, um, nature that we've got, and it's just such a great a great city and a great patch. And I feel sometimes it's overlooked. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, at my time at the BBC, I always wanted to do something about that, um, and. I tried at one point to base a couple of my members of my team out there, hire some members of my team out there. Didn't quite happen, but yeah, I'm, I'm moving forward. We might talk about this in a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I can continue to, to. Yeah. So I think we probably might end up talking about it because I just wanted to ask you as the next question, you've obviously now or relatively recently have left the BBC and recently announced that you're setting up 
um, your own podcast production company. So I guess my first question is, obviously, with BBC for 14 years, how difficult was the decision to leave? Really difficult um, because I, you know, love the BBC. And if you if you cut me open, you know, I'd have BBC <laughs> through me like a stick of rock. I've been there. It's not the only the only proper job I've ever had um, working for that, you know, fantastic organization. And I, I miss, you know, I knew I'd miss kind of representing the BBC and to be able to go anywhere in the world as I've done and say you're a BBC journalist you know, is, is such a, I felt proud every time I said it. And every time I walked through the door, I felt proud and I've got nothing but respect and admiration for the organization. Um, and you know, never, you never know one day I might end up either working for them or making content for them or whatever. So I hope the door is always open for me. Um, but you know, 14 years is a long time anywhere. And I, I think I needed a new challenge. And I, I also, didn't want to become institutionalized somewhere, which I think is very, very mm-hmm. easy anywhere, especially at the BBC. And um, yeah, just some really exciting opportunities have come my way that I've always, I've sort of had to say no to because of my day job. And and it just felt like the right time for a change. And I'm really, really looking forward to what's, what comes next. And so just before we get onto that, I just wanted to ask you one thing actually about the BBC, because yeah. in the same way that BBC journalists get a lot of abuse, the BBC almost as a concept now is quite a target. Mm. I mean, do you think there are legitimate criticisms of the BBC or or do you kind of see it as... I mean, of course, I mean, of course there's, the, you know, it's a huge organisation that employs, you know, tens of thousands of people. Uh, you know, the, not everything is perfect all the time. Um, and we, we should absolutely take criticism. We're a publicly funded body. Uh, I'm sort of saying we as if I still work at the BBC I don't uh, and I don't want to speak on behalf of the BBC but yeah you know we we when people do take criticism you know I in my role as an editor I went on the media show I went on feedback you know we responded to things on the podcast as well actually that was another yeah. great thing about the podcast is that when you know somebody may, maybe took issue with with some of our reporting or you know something we'd said and wanted us to explain a bit more about how we'd reached that conclusion or why we'd broadcast that we could actually do that in the podcast and, and be quite responsive so that was great I mean look, the, the the thing for me is I think and I think the current leadership of the BBC really do get this which is why you are seeing such a big shift outside of London is that the BBC does need to represent the whole of the UK and that's not just you know and and as I said before it's not just about moving Mm -hmm. people somewhere from you know shifting people from London you've got to hire people who represent the whole of the country and in my time as an editor at the BBC I tried really really hard to make sure that there was diversity in all in all areas but especially social diversity and trying to employ people who come from non-traditional backgrounds into the BBC you know bluntly working class people I think, you know, the BBC does need to work harder to to represent um, uh, working class audiences. And that starts by employing working class in the new sense, employing working class journalists. And there's a challenge that comes with that, right? Because, you know, the the, the journalism school that I went to in London, um, you know, unless you're on the bursary, the fees mm-hmm. are high. And, you know, so there's an access thing and how we, and, and the BBC is doing really, really good work about, opening the doors and getting people from non-traditional backgrounds into the newsroom uh, and, and reflecting 
their approach uh, on air. And so, so uh, that's obviously the BBC side of things. But in terms of yourself and the new company, Persephonica, can you tell me a little bit more about that and kind of what you hope to achieve um, with, with your new yeah. new venture? Well, bluntly, I want to try and continue. Uh, creating successful podcasts like the ones I've created at the BBC, um, which I think, you know, are habit forming podcasts that people want to keep coming back to either daily or weekly, but the the audiences that grow over time and and they feel that ownership, they feel that's a space that they kind of want to keep coming back to. Uh, I want to keep working with really fantastic, big talent, you know, the best in the business, who are really across their brief and that in those podcasts, you know, with, whether it's, you know, Emily Maitlis, by the way, another fellow Sheffielder um, who just in the, in America just really knew her stuff and wanted to talk about it. And there are lots of people out there who have got expertise in their niche and who are also fantastic broadcasters. Some of them may not know it yet, but you know, <laughs> that it's about finding, finding that talent and, and, and taking them into the podcast space. Um, so I want to do that, but I'm also not just going to restrict myself to news as well. So I'm already working on some, you know, offers in the culture space. Um, and, you know, another really exciting development talking about Yorkshire and, and the North is that I really kind of want to put my money where my mouth is on, on that front. And I think that we want to have a base. Um, we will have a base in Sheffield. Uh, as well as in London. So I'm kind of in London now and the team, you know, the company started in London, but we're going to have a base in Sheffield. Um, we want to, we think it's really important to be um, telling stories that are based in, that you know, that come from a different perspective, stories that, and, you know, God knows there are lots of them, you know, in the North there are, and in Yorkshire and in Sheffield and in South Yorkshire, there are lots of amazing stories and characters that can be translated into the podcast space. So we want to be doing that. Um, I can actually tell you, and and I haven't, we haven't said this anywhere else before, but um, I'm working on some podcasts with Warp Films. So there's Sheffield based, you know, hugely successful this is England Sheffield based pr- production company. Like yeah, this is England Four Lions, yeah. and they just did the Jamie film, uh, which a lot of it was was filmed in Sheffield. Um, so we're working on with them on developing some titles together, which is really exciting. And it feels like a real sort of natural fit in that they're, you know, at the top of their game and, and what they do in, in the TV space, but haven't really ventured into audio yet. And they're, so, so we're working together. So it'd be interesting to see what comes yeah. from that. Um, and I think there's so much opportunity of that kind of, you know, dramatization, narrative storytelling, um, and I think we can really push some boundaries there. Um, so that's so, really exciting. Just on that, so with the work with Warp, I don't know how much you're allowed to say at the moment, but is it going to be, as you say, like dramatization and narrative storytelling rather than the, uh, the standard podcast of... Yeah, it's, it's, it's early yeah. stages. We're in, we're, we're in develop, we're de- developing okay, ideas cool. at the moment. So it's too yeah. soon to say what, what will materialize from that. Um, but you know, I, I'm really excited. What's, I'm sure whatever comes out of it is going to be going to be fantastic and, and, and groundbreaking. And I'm really, really looking forward to, to them. And I'm really looking f- forward to discovering great Northern talent and we're going to be hiring people in the not too distant future. 
and I'm looking to have people who are, you know, who come, who've come from the North from all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, and I think in the podcasting space, you know, you look at Sheffield, which is such a great musical hub and some of the biggest bands in the world have come from there. And there's, you know, in kind of warehouses in Attercliffe, there are people making fantastic music, young producers who are self-taught. And you can see quite easily how people like that could transition into sound design mm. of a podcast, you know, um, and there are fantastic journalists, journalism schools in Sheffield, you know, both the big universities have got journalism schools. So I'm really looking to tap into that talent. And then Warp obviously has got great access to script writers and, um, you know, acting talent as well, up and coming acting talent, as well as big acting talent. So it'd be great to see where we get to. And, and, and I'm really looking forward to tapping into all of that. I guess my final question is, when can we kind of expect to start seeing the first podcasts um, f- from the new company? Next year is the short answer to that. You know, we're hurtling very quickly to Christmas. So we've we've already started piloting and actually recording some podcasts. And as, as I say, in, in, in all spaces, and actually it's a really, really exciting time. And lots of, when I left the BBC, I was approached by, was really flattered to be approached by lots of people saying, will you come and work for us? And actually a lot of those conversations have turned into interesting partnerships and conversations. And I'm working with, with one news organization already on on creating a a new type of news podcast for them so that's exciting um i've been approached by some talent to kind of make podcasts with them which is which is great so we'll be doing that next year in the kind of music space which is fantastic so yeah looking forward to just like not just doing news which obviously that will be an itch that i want to continually scratch um but we're really broadening our offer and i think you know working with people like warp in sheffield will be really really exciting and it's kind of a bit like with the Sheffield tree stuff where you could take a step back and, you know, see things a bit differently, obviously with the day to day of politics, I know Brexit cast was doing it to a point, but you're still reacting to like the day's events and the day's events keep happening, don't they in politics? Yeah. And I think there's a, there is a space for that. And I think that will always be my bread and butter, I think is kind of reactive podcasting and quick turnaround, but high quality, quick turnaround podcasts where people you're, you're providing people with topical information, which is what they want. Right. Um, but then also, yeah, be, having the ability to, to, to sit back. And I did a bit of that at the BBC as well. You know, we did the, the next episode um, podcast and we did an episode about Jared O'Mara, which did quite well. Um, and that was again, you know, basing yourself somewhere, doing the doing your homework, meeting people, doing journalism, and telling those stories, and it's fascinating to see how journalism in the podcasting space has developed into this kind of you know, and a lot of it sort of, you know, some of it forms under the sort of true crime type of thing, but there are so many stories out there ready to be told and told in a different, exciting way. Uh, and I'm and I'm looking forward to to trying to do that. That's brilliant. Well, look, thank you so so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And not that you need it, but good luck with the new company. Cheers, Chris. Thanks so much. And yeah, I'm a I'm an avid reader of the Yorkshire well, Post. And is anyone sensible? Is obviously. So of, of course, <laughs> yeah. So uh, hope hopefully we can chat again um, next year when we've got oh, some yeah, more concrete be, uh, proposals. That'd be great. About. Nice one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think we should be digging into, please get in touch with me um, via email, chris.burn at jpimedia.co.uk. Speak next week.